Hello, and welcome to the Area 831 podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gaither. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Emily Stansel. Before we get into today's episode, please take a moment to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Area 831 Podcast. That's where you'll be able to check out some of the behind-the-scenes content, as well as find out when our next episode will be dropping. It's also where we can see your feedback about the show. Tell us what you think. Let us know if there's someone you think we should be talking to. We are back after an unintended short hiatus. Um, All three of us, Emily, Joe, and myself, are back. Welcome to the Area 831 podcast. Today, we're talking to a a, uh, former Santa Cruz resident who had quite a career in punk rock, running a label, and now he's a stand-up comic. And he's going to be in town at Coamba on February 9th. Joe Sib will be up here in just a moment. But before we talk to Joe, let's hear some of his stand-up. Why is it that women always want to ask you the most intense question as you go to sleep? Look how tight the room got right now, because every dude's like, Joe, please don't go down this road right now, please. But it's true. You've had all day to tell me about all the things I'm not doing right. We watched The Crown for four hours, and you never said one word to me. We had dinner. We were intimate. We both peed, it's time for bed, babe. And as you drift off to sleep, out of nowhere, it's always these words to break the silence. Can I ask you a question? It's never a killer question, you guys. It's never like, hey, babe, tomorrow morning, what do you think about this? I cook you a steak naked. That's a great Saturday right there. That's an awesome Saturday. So, Joe, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for dialing in, which is a weird term anymore, but uh, good to meet you in person virtually. Thanks for wearing a Ramones t-shirt. I did that just for you. Thank you. Just for you. Still my favorite band of all time. Oh, my God. It's like I I can never get enough of them, and you'd think by now I would be over it. I still go on Ramones runs where I'll listen to the Ramones like all this. uh, Like me and my best friend used to call it being on a Ramones run where you would just listen to them like, constantly for like two weeks and then you would stop just because you had to listen to every it's like i feel like their songs are the way i want my life to be just so neat complete never changing there's you know two verses two choruses an outro we're done it's no like, waste no wasted no wasted moments none. <laughs> i love i want my mind to be like ramon's songs just nice and neat yeah you it's, know? Like, it's 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 kind of a good writing metaphor too i just say exactly what you have to say you know totally yeah. Dude, there, I mean, if you look at comedy and you use the Ramones as an analogy, I mean, you would be writing great jokes because it would just be about like the setup, the punchline, the setup, the punchline, maybe bring something back. Boom. You know, you could yeah. build a perfect set, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm a songwriter too. So I always look at that model. In fact, my wife is really good. If we go see somebody who's whatever, she's got this knack where she'll go listen to a song by somebody we don't know. And all of a sudden she'll go, huh, it's too long. There's like ah. this tipping point where she's like, no, it's too long. Yeah, I think jokes are like that too. I mean, I, it's like, you know, there's some people that, you know, when they write, they they, they might be long form or story. or Right. You know, and then there's, you know, there's joke writing that's very short and to the point. And there's one liners. And, and I, I feel like it's very similar to music. You know, like, you know, if, you, if you're going to listen to like Zeppelin or, you know, uh, you know, a band like that, you know, you're going to, you're going to hear leads and, you know, it's known for Jimmy Page and you're going <clears> to, <throat> you're going to be drawn into that, you know, whereas, you know, if you listen to the Ramones, it's short bursts of energy. A lot said, short amount of period, short amount of time in and out. And I think, 
I, I always used to say like, I think like comedy, like that's why I like, you know, music and comedy. I feel, you know, if, especially if you come from both worlds as you do, you know, you, you can see the similarity sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I still write, I still write a set list out for a comedy show the same way I'd write a set list out for, for when I was in a band. So just to stay on like the short and sweet for music, um, I think Michael and I have talked about this in the past where I learned like in the mid nineties, I hate jam music. Yeah. Um, like, uh, like I went and saw the Black Crows. They played like, you know, that's the one record they had out. And the um, like I, she talks to angels was like a 25 minute, like whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. I'm like, this is a, a three minute song. Like what's happening? Here? <laughs> yeah. 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 And and especially with the Crows, they, you know, and as they've continued on, it's like, it, you know, that they definitely lean into that world of jam bands. I mean, that's their, that's just. Yeah. That's their raw, you know, that's their, that's their, that's their jam, literally. Yeah. <laughs> my story not, that I always, not for this guy. <laughs> yeah. My story that I always tell is, and I probably told it here in the past. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so I'm not a Grateful Dead fan, even though I have a lot of friends that are dead. I've, I've tried really hard, but I did the yeah. songs that I like and I'll play. And um, a friend of mine gave me like a box of vinyl. And when it was like this live, this live album, I was playing it and they, they covered Mama Tried. They had some of their hits. It was, it was actually really good. I'm like, oh, okay. And, and then I turned over to side two and side two was a drum solo. That's it. The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. And I, I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, you know? And so my wife comes home later and I'm, I have Sabbath just cranked in the lips. She's like, what are you doing? I go, I need a palate cleanser. I need to get that out of my, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is for me though, but as I've gotten older, like if I've had enough beers, sometimes the Grateful Dead, I I'll, I can be like, all right, that's cool. Like, you know, like yeah. if I'm at someone backyard party and we're barbecuing and, and then they slide into the dead i'm like okay you know like i i can i can i can digest it now yeah here and there definitely when i was a kid i couldn't though it was just like couldn't get no, my head around it no you know no. But that's the best thing about it. as you get older you start digging stuff that you didn't dig when you were a kid it's true it's you know, really true because you you know even <clears throat> even styles of music that you weren't particularly into because i think as you get older you 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 know you've lived longer and you respect uh, those artists more because you might know like, you know what it takes to be that artist. So you're like, you know what, I'm going to give that another try. Yeah. Or the connections you know? they have with other artists who would, whom you admire that comes around too. And, when, and, yeah. and as you get older, you just don't care. Sure. I'll listen to this. Why not? I'll give it a shot. Yeah, totally. Your friends Dude, aren't, my, your friends aren't going, that sucks. Don't listen to that. Cause you're, I got so much grief. I got so much grief. Um, I don't know, like maybe six months ago when I started listening to that, that Harry Styles record, you know, that song <laughs> where it goes, uh, we're gonna wait. The two little kids are like the uh, same as it yeah. used to be or whatever. And it's like, we want to say good night to you, Harry. Like, I remember I heard that song and then I just went on a, I just, I don't know. I just would start, I started listening to that record and I was like, I just one song after another, I was like, I like that song. I like this song. And then I remember one night, um, the guy goes, Hey man, what do you want to come up to tonight? And I said, bring me up to Harry Styles, you know, as, <laughs> as it used to, whatever that song was. And everyone yeah. in the green room got so bombed. They're like, dude, are you serious? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And they're like, I mean, come on. And I'm like, well, dude, what do you want me to come out to? Like some song from the, you know, 82 black flag. Like no one, you know, like, come on, it's done. And, uh, and, uh, I, I came out to Harry Styles and, and, uh, you know, it's just like before, you know, I'm, I'm like, I like the song. It puts me in a good mood, you know? And the music videos are fun too. It's just like happy oh, music. It's cool. Dude. And I love how high he wears his pants live. It's great. I just yeah. dig it. I don't know. It's such like a it style like fun. 
-hmm. looks like he's having fun. I like people that are having fun. And it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be. You have a daughter. You have a daughter, Joe, right? Yeah, twenty-two. Oh, 22. Nice. My, my girl, I have twin daughters or they'll be 20 in April, but, um, Olivia Rodrigo is another one where, you know, the, my girls turn me on to music and Olivia Rodrigo is one of those, like, I heard her at first. I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then as my kids keep playing her in the background, I'm like, she kind of rocks a bit. There's like Paramore yeah. in here a little bit. There's, you know, Avril Lavigne in here a little bit and, but a bit more contemporary. So yeah. another one, you know, thanks to the kids. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, there's I something mean, there's something cool about hearing an artist you wouldn't even like consider giving the time of day to, and all of a sudden you go, "Wow, she's she's really cool." I had no idea, you know. That's yeah. why I talked about Harry Styles until I started listening, and then I got hooked, just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what was the band that Harry was in before? Was it in, uh, was he in One Direction? Y- yes, yes. Yeah. One yeah so I took my daughter to see One Direction back in the day. And I remember I took her to the shows that I think it was at the Forum in Los Angeles. I took her and her girlfriend to the show. They were little kids. And um, that was like the first time that like I saw him. And um, so then like I had this like I, th- I felt like when he went off on his own, like I had this invested interest in him. Like, yeah, I want to make sure he does well. So then I think <laughs> I just, you know, I was like, all right. I, I, I was old school. I saw him in one direction, you know, yeah. <laughs> back in the day, Bef- back in the before day. he sold out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sold out at the forum. Jesus. Wow. No. Hey, yeah. Let's, let's let's back up a little bit because I want to. You're going to be in town in Santa Cruz at Coamba on March 9th, February 8th, 9th. February 9th. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're not going to do this whole bit again. February 9th. No, we're not. February 9th. It's all every good. year, Don't no. Every year it. I screw up March and February, and I, I transpose the dates. February. Don't worry about it. All right. Let's say it Friday, again. I missed this. Friday, Friday, February 9th. Uh, Santa Cruz at the Kumba Jazz Club, super super cool place. The best um, room love, in the, the the best room in the county, bar none. Yeah, I mean, I just really like performing there, and um, and one of the things uh, you know, D and I talked about, and and uh, you know, my mom used to love coming to see me at that room, so you know, uh, D and I were like, man, we should do the show there, and I was like, let's do it. So you know, I I don't know, I I love a, it's always fun to. I haven't been in Santa Cruz in ages. I don't know the last time I trying to think like when i came up i it was i was i think the last time i came up to headline shows yeah the last time i headlined shows was when dna opened up uh dna comedy club and um i opened up i did i was the the i did the first weekend that he did it we did mm. uh friday and saturday there and it was great um and uh so i haven't been there since then so that's like pre-pandemic it's been a right. long time yeah, we were talking about like, D- yeah, we were talking about DNA before we recorded, and he's really worked uh, hard to, to build this comedy community up in Santa Cruz. I don't think happens don't in a lot it, of towns like this. I don't think it does. Well, you know what? Everyone's. I mean, I feel that like there's definitely scenes that have people that are very in touch with the comedians, very in touch with um, making a comedy community. You know, uh, DNA is absolutely one of those guys. The thing I love about him is not only is he a comedian first and foremost. He's funny. Um, you know, he's a great writer. He's a great performer, but he also has a great eye for talent. He has a great eye for where a show should be, how a show should run. Uh, he's always been a huge supporter of comedians. He's always connecting people. He's brutally honest. He's brutally honest. So I remember when I first started, you know, getting to know him and work with him, you know, he'll tell you what he thinks is working. He'll tell you what he thinks isn't working. He'll tell you what you're you know, what kind of tickets he thinks you can sell. He'll tell you if you can't sell tickets, he'll tell you he can book you. He'll tell you he can't. 
He doesn't hold any punches. I love that about him. Um, you know, him and I, um, you know, it, it was funny we, when we first met each other, I didn't really plan or thought we would become as good of friends as we had mm-hmm. or as we have. He, um, you know, over the pandemic, him and I, I think became better friends over that because we would just sit on the phone and talk comedy. And I love that about him. Uh, you know, when my mom used to come and see me, she always, you know, he'd always say hi to her. Uh, he was, you know, they had kind of a rapport. He, I think once in a while he would run into her maybe in the, you know, just out in Santa Cruz. And then, um, you know, even to the point when my mom uh, at my mom's funeral, like, you know, DNA was there and uh, it was super, it was super special. I'm like, oh, wow, man, like what a solid human being to, uh, you know, to come here today and just be a part of it. And it was, I was like, man, you know, he's, you know, and he's just one of those guys that I just, like I said, there are there's so many community scenes or comedy scenes and there's certain people in it. Like, you know, as we've all read, you know, you got the Mitzi, of course, you know, from the mm-hmm. comedy store, just such a legendary figure and the stories and we've all seen it and we've read it. Um, and then you have people like Wendy, you know, from Denver comedy works, who's one of those women that's just a part and very, very um, just a integral part of the comedy scene out there in Denver and very a part of, you know, there isn't a lineup that goes out on those stages that she doesn't know what's going on. There isn't comics. You know, she is so just in touch with who's coming in, who's coming up in the scene. Uh, and and those are people that are, you know, famous, obviously. You know, Wendy in Comedy Works is legendary. And, and uh, Mitzi, obviously, with the store is legendary. But I really do feel that DNA is one of those people um, in the comedy world, you know. And it he just, he has that same thing that, the two people I just mentioned have. He's just, he's got a great eye of talent and he doesn't hold anything back. And I think yeah. that's a quality that um, helps push comics and it helps push comedy communities to become better. Yeah. Cause if, you know, if, if you don't have someone that's doing that, <clears throat> there tends to be no, um, no kind of path for younger comics to follow. They're just kind of, it's a little chaotic and no one, no one knows like kind of like, okay, you know, I'm going to do, you know, back in the day shows at the poet, I'm going to do shows at the blue lagoon because I'm working towards maybe a feature spot at, you know, a Kumba show. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think what, what is great about DNA, he does that. And, you know, for people that are comics, they know what I'm talking about, you know, for the people that aren't comics, it might be like, wow, just sounds like a promoter to me, but I don't know. Promoters have changed over the years and there, the way that DNA does it, I feel, and I don't want to use the word old school. Cause that kind of, makes it sound um, out of date and out of touch and very boomer. But I feel that a lot of that is lost. You know, nowadays you roll through comedy clubs, they could give a shit on who the comics are, you know, not to say that there's not great comedy clubs because there are, you know, side splitters, Tampa, amazing. Um, you know, uh, some of the improvs, you know, Irvine improv, Brea improv, uh, Hollywood improv, you know, th- there's, you know, you go to laugh factory, you know, Jamie Masada still is, as much as, you know, he's Jamie Masada and, and everything, he's going to, he's aware of what's going on at all of his clubs. But then there's just a lot of rooms and places I feel that they don't care anymore, you know? And, and it's unfair to say it's the, it's the comedy club's fault because the people they have running the comedy clubs aren't even really out of the comedy world. Like they're, they're, you know, people, that, that's what it know, goes back to. It's the people, you know, they, yeah they graduated from college and it's like, I got a degree in business. Okay, cool. You're our booker. How's that going to work? You know, right. it's, I really feel that 
the clubs that are successful and the clubs that care, you know, they're like off the hook in Naples, you know, they're, you know, they call him captain Brian. I mean, you know, he's, he knows everything and anything that's going on in that room. And he has everyone going through there. You know, he has everyone from, you know, huge headliners to, uh, you know, features that are going to headliners yeah. and, and, but he's aware of everything going on. Yeah, it's really and, analogous you know, to music too. It's like, if somebody's booking music for a, you know, a venue, a brewery, whatever, it's like, they have to have a tie to the local music scene. They have to care and they have to know, you know, you have to care. And a lot of times, unfortunately, comedy clubs, um, you know, I think sometimes have fallen in the trap. And the thing is I can see the side from the comedy club because at the end of the day, if it's a comedy club, a lot of times it's a restaurant and they're just like, we need to sell drinks. Mm -hmm. We need to sell nachos and we need to sell fries. And, you know, we got to push the drinks out there. We got to push the food out there and the entertainment becomes second, which the entertainment's the comedy. And if they're not cultivating good comedians, then the rooms aren't going to get full. And then you're not going to sell the burgers and the fries and the drinks and because you're going to have bad entertainment up there. So there, I really believe that it, there has to be in the places that are successful, there has to be people like DNA, people that give and care about the comedians and the comedy scene yeah. and know how to cultivate it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our that's our DNA portion of the show. Next question. <laughs> I hope you're listening, DNA. He better be. The only spots I know of that have comedy in Santa Cruz is like the crow's nest. And that falls. Yeah. And I've never done that show. I've never done. But I mean, it's it's exactly what you were saying. It's like, you're there to have a meal. Like, let's say you didn't know there was comedy, right? So you're there to have a meal and it's like, oh, you know, oh, there happens to be a performer. Great. But then you're right. They become secondary to like, let's, let's get the drinks out the door. Let's get the, you know, the halibut plated, whatever. Um, totally. And the only, I've never seen a show there but I've seen enough of their like web flyers about the comics yeah. coming there. And the, the last comedy show I saw in Santa Cruz was at the Rio and it was headlined by a local guy, Ian Harris. Mm -hmm. um, and he was being refilmed for a Netflix special, which I don't think ever made it to Netflix. Uh, that I'm aware of, mm, but um, okay. you know, like the Rio was sold out, you wow. know? So it's like, there's an opportunity to like fill a room like the rio theater is pretty large a couple hundred people. oh my god love the rio i saw et there when it first came out wow. oh nice i did too yeah, my, yeah. you know did you i saw the lost did boys there before it before it opened on the on a preview oh my god yeah my mom mm. my uh my mom's boyfriend uh took me when i was a kid to see et um there and um and i remember like you know it was it, seeing that was like the movie theater as a kid that you know we'd go to see films I want to say maybe I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind there when I was a kid. Hmm. I remember, though, reading a story. Who's the famous actor that's from Santa Cruz? Um, you know, comic actor. He was Adam in Step Scott? Brothers. No, oh, Adam, Adam Scott. Scott. Adam Scott. So, oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. So yeah. check it out. I was reading an interview with Adam Scott, and he talked about seeing E.T. too at the Rio. And I was like, no way. You know, like he saw that when it came out. So, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, he, he gave a shout out to the Rio. It was a great so theater. Let, let's kind of take a step back and talk about, you know, you, you, Joe, and your story. Like DNA said that you're, you're kind of uh legacy Santa Cruz. Um, uh, like what's, what's tell us about your early days coming up in the area. Uh, I think you're up from the, the mountains, if I'm not mistaken, but um, yep. love to hear Santa kind Cruz. of a, how, uh, how Joseph made his way from, you know, the back country of Santa Cruz to, you know, 
running a punk band to running a label to going out on the road doing comedy. I mean, your story is really interesting. The story for me was my parents grew up on the East Coast, mom and dad. Uh, my dad was from uh, Queens uh, in New York City. My mom was from Philadelphia. They met out there and they uh, got married and then they had me out there on the uh, East Coast. But we never we didn't stay there, I think, longer than like six months. They just waited for me to get old enough because they were already decided that they were going to move west. Uh, my dad at that point was an English teacher. And um, he had scored a job at Santa Clara University. And my mom at the time was, um, you know, having, you know, had had me. So they were like, you know what, let's go out to the West Coast. They, my dad had a, um, an uncle out uh, on, the, on the West Coast that um, he would come out and visit a lot. He was really into uh, horses. My mom was really into horses. They would come out to Sacramento and they'd spend, um, you know, time on a ranch there. So their idea was they wanted to leave the East Coast, come to the West Coast, and like a lot of people were at that time, because this was like, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, they were like, you know what, we want to um, we want to do something different. We want to we want to have a horse ranch. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to have a horse ranch, a stable of horses. And the idea was they'd have like five, six horses and they would um, they wanted to like have a stable so that people from the city would leave their horse there during the week and then on the weekend ride it. And uh, my parents would take care of the horse. At the same time, my dad was teaching at Santa Clara University. And um, I was just kind of left to my, you know, to my own means in the mountains. You know, we were on old San Jose Road, you know, right up, I'd say like from Soquel, probably like 20 minute ride. So we were deep in the woods. You know, we were out there, we were on five acres and we had a well. Ultimately, the um, the stable that my parents started was five horses and then it grew to, I want to say, 22 25 horses that they took care of and it was my mom and dad and they were and then my sister was born and at this point you know my earliest remember memories are just growing up out in the middle of nowhere and just always just spending my day and time entertaining myself because there was no one to hang out with i was just out in the middle of nowhere and i remember there was like neighbors but i didn't really hang out with them that much they were kind of you know, it, like the closest neighbor was like, you know, maybe like 500 yards away or something. So it was like, there wasn't anyone near you that you could just be like, Hey, what's up? So I just kind of cruised around. I wasn't really into horse riding. Like, cause like it's, it kind of scared me the size of the animals. I was really into like riding my bike. I wanted a motorcycle. My parents wouldn't let me get one. Um, at that point, Right around, like, I want to say when I was about 10 years old, so right around 77, my um, my mom brought home um, a skateboarder magazine. And I think I talked her into buying it for me. And I had gotten a skateboard from Kmart. My dad took me to Kmart on 40, 41st Avenue. <laughs> and we bought a banana board. Nice. Uh, it was a yellow banana board, no kicktail. Um, you know, the wheels, like the bearings, you know, weren't encased, the trucks were terrible. And it was, I mean, it literally was a death trap. And <laughs> I rode this thing constantly. I mean, from, from the time I got home from school till it got dark and I just rode around, we had this patch of cement in front of my house where my mom and dad would park the car so they wouldn't park so I could ride around. <clears throat> and I would look at skateboard magazine and I was just so into, um, I was just into it. I was like, man, I'm loving 
I'm just loving what reading about skateboarding and I'm loving doing it, you know? And it was such a game changer because I had never seen other people skateboarding and skating the type of terrain they were in that magazine. And I remember there was this church. I, I don't know if it's still there on, on uh, old San Jose road. It was uh, the seventh day Adventist camp. Is that still out oh, there? Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. That's still there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like they, those crew, the, that crew would, I guess, come out every summer for seventh day Adventist. But during the, during the year, <clears throat> the facility that they had, I just remember we would be driving by with my dad and his Datsun and um, he, we, I would look over there and there was these, there was a fence, barbed wire or whatever. And on the other side, there was these like, these like slanted, you know, driveways and pieces of, you know, pavement that looked similar to what I was seeing in Skateboard Magazine. And I remember I was with my dad and I remember when we got home, I showed him pictures of skaters skating banks cement banks that were very similar to those seventh day Adventist um, banks that I saw. And I remember my dad was like, well, we should go, you should go and you should go and take your skateboard and ride them. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, we should, we should go there. So one day <clears throat> after school, he picked me up and we drove straight there and we pull up. And of course, you know, there's a fence, you know, eight feet high, big, do not trespass sign. And I, I'm like, now what? And he's like, well, hop over the fence and go skate. <laughs> Good parents. And I remember, I, remember I was like, I was like, I remember I said to him, like, Dad, what are you what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, Joey, here's the deal. You climb over the fence, get on the other side. If anyone, you know, comes up to you and asks you to stop skating, just be really polite. And if they say, you know, what are you doing back here? Just say to them, I didn't know. And I didn't know I was supposed to be back here. Well, what about the no no trespassing sign? Oh, I didn't know that that applied to this. I'm sorry. He said, just be polite. <laughs> apologize and no one's gonna no one's gonna be mad at you they're just gonna ask you to leave and if they ask you to leave you leave and i was like really and he's like yes and he goes just act like you're supposed to be back there and it was a real moment that like really changed my life because you know i hopped over the fence he sat in the his dots and grading papers and for like an hour i just skated these banks and sooner or later someone cruised over and exactly what he said would happen. They said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I thought I could be here. No, you can't. Oh, I can't? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? There's a sign right there. Oh, I didn't see that sign. Have the whole scenario really? played out ahead of time. Yeah. And it it totally, and I was like, okay. And then they were like, well, you can't be back here. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. Well, you know, well, how much longer do you think you want to be back here? I don't know. Maybe another hour. Okay. Just leave in an hour. And then the guy drove away and I skated for another hour. And then I climbed and that's when you became a Seventh Day Adventist. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then I, I was like, I jumped over the fence. And I remember when I got in the car with my dad and we drove away, it was like, I was like, wow, like, you know, how did he know that that was going to happen? And also, um, it really played out the way that he said it was going to happen. So exactly like kinda, he said it was yeah. Yeah. And it also, at that moment, it really switched a switch in my head where moving forward, you know, I that's how I started when I got older. And started going to you know see punk rock shows and even big concerts like i always was able to get to where i wanted because i just acted like i was supposed to be there you know <laughs> i didn't i whether it was you know sneaking into you know um the ramones backstage or going to see acdc or anywhere you know i just was able to 
get into that that mindset of like if I act like I'm supposed to be here, you know, no one's gonna no one's gonna question it. And that that really worked moving forward with so many times in my life. And, 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 if, you're, um, and if you're super polite about it, you go, okay, right. you know, and nobody gets Dude, defensive usually. It puts, I do it it puts the other people on the back foot because then they're like, wait, am I wrong? Is that right. supposed to be they here? Kinda, they kind of double check themselves. You know? yeah. I remember one time, I remember one time I was at, uh, I think it was Coachella or it might've been FYF Fest. I think it was FYF Fest. And I had, I had forgotten my credentials to get backstage. And I'm running around and one of my bands was getting ready to go on stage. Not a band that I was singing in, but a band that I was either managing or someone that was on side one dummy. And I remember I go to the back and the guy goes, Hey man, I need to see your, your, um, you know, you don't, you don't have your laminate with you. You don't have the credentials. And I just out of my mouth, I said, look, bro, look at me. See how old I am. Do I look like I want to be here? This is the last place <laughs> I want to be on a Saturday. I'd rather be with my family, sitting around, you know, my backyard, around the pool, barbecuing, drinking a few beers. You think I want to be here in the? And he goes, "Sorry, sir," and just let me in. Nice, you know? and sir. It was just like, you got called sir, and he was really polite. Got called sir, and it was one of those kind of things that, like, I just have been able. I feel that advice my dad gave me just ended up always being a part. It really was a turning point in my life. Like, not only as a skateboarder, but as just, um, you know, a person that would find themselves in situations that generally, you know, you'd be like, how the hell, you know, am I here right now? But it was always like, act like you're supposed to be there and no one's yeah. going to say anything. There's a Joe Walsh. There's a Joe Walsh lyric that I like, sorry, Joe, there's a Joe Walsh lyric that I like, or, and I forget the song, but if you act like, you know what you're doing, people think you do that. Plus totally. being really freaking polite gets you pretty far. Have you passed down that, that, tip to your kids i'm wondering because absolutely and do they do they follow it oh my god my son all the time my son all the time good not so good. much my daughter but my son you know he was um he told me a story recently that was super funny he was um where was he he was he was um trying to get into a club in hollywood and he heard the door guy talking about comedians and he was like, oh, okay, they're talking comedy. And somehow or another Jim Brewer's name came up and Jim goes, and Nate, my son, Nate goes, you know, he knows Jim has three kids, you know, three daughters. And the guy goes, my, my son was like, did something like, oh yeah, man, Jim Brewer, are you a fan? And the guy's like, yeah, man, we love Jim. He's like, yeah. And he's like, how do you know Jim Brewer? And Nate goes, oh, I'm his son. And the guy goes, you are? He goes, yeah. And uh, and Nate totally talked it up and got into the club for free. And wow. and, and me and it was funny because I had Nate tell Jim that story one time when we were on the road, and Nate was laughing. You know, we were all laughing because all the guy had to do is be like, he doesn't have any sons; he has three daughters. But uh, <laughs> you know, like so, Nate, my my youngest, who's nineteen, he definitely knows how to work it. That guy, yeah, he's he's told me great stories because he's taking it to the next level. Because like you know where I was was one level, but like where Hollywood is now and where like, you know, the parties he's been to and the, the crews that he's rolled with, he's just, you know, told me getting backstage. And I mean, he was, he was backstage like at a Beck show recently. And I was like, how the hell are you there? You know, like it was just <laughs> Madison square gardens. I'm like, Oh my God, you've taken it to the next level. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I told my dad that and he was so proud. 
<laughs> Words of wisdom passed along. Hey, so there speaking of talking about when did comedy come along? Because you, you were a musician first before comedy. I'm yep. assuming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I went from I went from living out in the woods, you know, up until about the 80s. And then my mom and dad called it a day. My dad lived moved to San Jose. My mom moved into Capitola. And um, I kind of went ping pong house mm -hmm. to house. Yeah. And that was like right when punk rock, you know, hit the suburbs. So it was like early 80s. And at that point, skateboarding was everything to me. And I just really dove head for head first into that. It was right. just skateboarding. And then at that same time, I discovered punk rock. And like I said, it was just at that point where so many bands were coming through San Jose, San Francisco um, on their way to do shows. So, you know, everyone, every band had to play San Francisco. And then they started realizing that San Jose was even kind of a, of a better market <clears throat> in the sense that like bands like Social Distortion, they obviously would play San Francisco at the On Broadway or the Mab, but then all of a sudden they started playing shows in San Jose and they realized there was just this huge scene of punkers and more youth oriented. Like I think at that point, the scene in San Francisco is, you know, those people were a bit older than us. Mm -hmm. So when they came through San Jose, it was young kids and skateboarders and a lot of bands, Circle Jerks. I mean, the Ramones started coming through there. Everyone started making San Jose a stop and it was just, I was in the right place, like I said, at the right yeah. time. And then um, that kind of morphed into, you know, going from just skating and, and going to shows. Um, it morphed into, um, at a certain point, like I was going to shows every single weekend, whether it was in Berkeley, Sacramento, uh, going to San Jose, obviously, tons of shows in San Francisco. And I was just making my way to like every weekend I needed to see everybody. I was like really on like, it was almost like I was like going to college for music sense that like i need you know if if it was aggression coming up from oxnard to do a show i had to be there if it was you know gbh coming over from england or the exploited like i had to be there for that i i couldn't miss any show and like i never got into drugs and you know i drank beers but like so i was the guy that was like i was going to the show from like you know back then there'd be like eight bill eight bands on a bill and i you know i would be there from seven o'clock at night till two in the morning and mm -hmm. i would see every single band and i i just i i don't know i mean i was really into um what the whole scene was about i think some kids were kind of like it was kind of a pit stop for them as they went from one point of their life to another and just because of the way i am like i i got into it but then it was like okay this is this like i'm choosing this as my life and like i really i really believed in what the band's were singing about and I really believed in like the movement of what was going on at the time. Like I was really into the, uh, you know, like minor threat was really, uh, and a lot of the bands, um, that were into minor threat, seven seconds and bands like minor threat, they were pushing, um, you know, a positive, uh, sober, you know, don't drink, don't fuck, don't smoke attitude. And even though like I, you know, wasn't completely straight edge that really spoke to me. Um, there was a band out of Stanford uh, back then called Whipping Boy, and their whole thing was knowledge is power. And I think that really resonated with me. You know, I, I'd never heard that phrase before. And I was like, wow, like, okay, like, you know, we're this music is making me want to move and create, but also like move and create in a positive way. Like, let's, you know, I was just, I was really fortunate at the time because the people I was growing up with, I didn't know it. 
everyone was doing something in the scene. Like, you know, we, we had young kids that were promoters and they were like my, my, my buddy, Corey O'Brien and his brother, Gavin O'Brien, they brought social distortion from LA to, to do a, a show in a vets hall, I think on like father's day. And they wow. like paid the band and you know, they were kids. Um, my, and they made it work. Oh. Yeah. They made oh. it work. And, and then I had another friend, you know, this guy named Adam bomb and, and, and he was the guitar player in the faction and they were the first band with Steve Caballero, Gavin O'Brien, um, Adam, uh, Keith Rendon and, um, Steve Cavalier was playing bass at the time later on. Um, you know, they had Ray Stevens on bass and uh, Craig, Craig Bosch on drums. But um, the, the, what I loved about that band was that was the first band from my hometown that, that, that put a record out and, and began touring. And I used to go and hang out at um, Adam's house and, and I would just sit there and watch him, you know, book the tour and, and, and how he'd, you know, he'd, he'd ship out the records. And, you know, at the, at this time I'm, you know, I'm like, 17 or 18 years old. And then I had, you know, I had a friend, Denise Vaughn, who she was this photographer and she took photographs and like had a camera and like real gear. And she documented all of, all of that. And then there was, there was bands like Los Avidados and Ribsy. And um, those bands just were like, to me, like bigger than life, but it was all from my hometown of San Jose and, you know, from, and then also, you know, in Santa Cruz at that time, you know, you had Blast and, um, you know, uh, Mock and all of, you know, those, that crew coming out of Santa Cruz and, um, you know, then later on the Swing Yutters and all that. So like, it was just this, this moment where like, I didn't think about it at the time, but all of these people that were in my life and all these people that I was once again, like a community, we were all doing really cool things. And I just thought, well, that's how everyone does it until I got out on the road with my own band and then you'd go to scenes and that wasn't the case. You know, there, there might be one promoter and there might be like one fanzine and in San Jose for, I don't know what it was. There were so many creative people doing so many super, I think, innovative things for like teenagers. Like, I, I mean, it was really, really, it was really cool to be a part of that. And what I didn't realize that at the time is it would shape my life for the rest of my life because that was what led me to get into uh, wanting to be in my own band. My first band was frontline. Um, and you know, learning how to put out a seven inch, learning how to put out a 12 inch, watching all of the friends that had, you know, my friend Adam who had the record company. And then that ultimately, you know, when I decided to move to LA in, uh, 90, you know, I came to Los Angeles with a huge knowledge of independent music but I didn't even know it. And at the time when I came down there and I met the guys that I started wax with, they had never, like, I just assumed, Oh yeah, you guys have had the same history I had. And they were like, they didn't even understand. Like, what do you mean? Like, not that they didn't understand because they were at a different, like they're where they had, you know, expanded was musically. Like they were real musicians that could like play really well. Not that I wasn't playing with good guys in San Jose, but they had spent more of the emphasis, you know, songwriting and working on music so then when we collaborated together and i became the singer of wax um it was like it was we were going to kill because they'd never booked any shows but i was like dude i can book us a west coast tour tonight you know like i've seen it done so many it. times yeah. yeah yeah and and then i was i and then i finally had a band that could do it so i feel like um the bay area scene is a much more scrappy diy right like totally like you said self-promoting getting themselves out there, maybe not 
you know, not, not a dig on anybody at all, but maybe not as musically inclined, right. But can definitely get a show, get a crowd to, to show up and rinse and repeat. Um, whereas maybe in LA, not so much. Right. Well, I think what happens is I think in LA, what I learned is, you know, no one's from LA. You all move there. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone mm -hmm. moves to LA. No one's from there. You know, I mean, everyone that, <clears throat> everyone that I met and I, you know, it was pretty rare to meet someone like, you know, like I remember, I think, I think the only, I always, I always use him as an example. I have this friend named Jason Bernard and I think Jason Bernard was like my only friend that like was actually from Hollywood, LA. Like I was like, wow, like everyone else, my partner that started side one, Santa Barbara, my best friend, Chris Shiflett, he was my roommate, went on to, he's the guitar player of the Foo Fighters, Santa Barbara, you know, my girlfriend, uh, my girlfriend, then my wife, Karen, Santa Ana, um, you know, uh, who else, you know, like just the people in my life, everyone that I met, the guys in wax, they were all from Chicago. Uh, everyone was, from, you know, everyone was from a different place. So I think you're right when you, when you say the Bay area, I don't, I don't, you know, back then people weren't moving to the Bay Area to make it in a band. Um, later on, you know, obviously people were moving up there. That's how we got Metallica there. But um, when I was when I when I decided to move down to LA, that was definitely like that's where you went to get signed. That's why you were going there. Like, you know, I make no like one hundred percent. That's why I moved to LA. Like, I was moving to LA to get into a band and to get signed. That's like that was the goal. That was completely the intention going there. Right. So how did uh, you go from, you know, what was the transition for you from like being in a band to deciding you wanted to be, get into the business side of things and start a label? Um, I was just always the guy that could go in at the end of the night and get paid. You know, I didn't, I didn't, like I said, I, you know, I drink some beers, a couple tequilas. So I wasn't the guy that was like so out of control that he couldn't, you know, go in and get paid. So I just figured, all right, I'll be the guy to do it. And then what ended up happening was, as I continued to pursue music and my band got signed and wax got signed, you know, we were on Virgin records and, uh, and, and we made a record for Caroline. Then we made a record for Virgin. We ended up that deal fell apart and, and the band broke up. And then ultimately I put that record out to start side one and when I put that record out on side one, the the wax record gained some momentum. And then that band got signed ultimately to Interscope. And that was our big deal with the Spike Jones video and everything blew up with wax. But at that moment, what I had decided, because my dad at the time loaned me five grand on one condition, whatever happens with your band, you still got to keep side one dummy going. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, love your band. Love that you're doing that. But at a certain point, if that doesn't work out, I want you to have, you got to have something else that's going on. I know you don't like hearing this. You're a great manager. You're a great producer. You're a great business person, which I hated hearing that. Like it would, to this day, it bums me out. Like I, I can't stand it when people, you know, like even as a comic, I mean, I'm better with it now, but like, cause I can't help myself and you know, like I'll tour manage the tour we're on right now just because I know how to do it. And I just don't want anyone else doing it because they'll fuck it up, <laughs> you know? Hmm. And, uh, and I, but like, it's, it's weird. It's like, it, even as a kid, like I remember my grandma used to say that to me, you make a great manager, you make a great, you know, uh, producer, you make a great record. And I was like, Oh my God, please. No, you don't understand. I'm the singer. I'm the guy. But at a certain point I just, I was just good at it. And when I met my partner, Bill, 
we had a really good combo of doing it. So he, him and I both kind of felt the same way. Like we kind of begrudgingly got into running a label, but I really think the reason we did it. And if you asked him, he always said the same thing. We just didn't want to get real jobs. And I think that was what scared us. We were like, Oh shit. If we don't make a record company work, that means we might have to get real jobs and real jobs were our, like, that was our biggest fear. Like today, even at this age, I, I still have a fear of like someday, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm staring at six Oh, and it's like, I still have a fear of like, God, someday, man, like if I mess up, I'm gonna have to get a real job. And like, I've, that's been my, that's been my incentive to work as hard as I do so that I never have to get a real job. And you know, some people good say, motivator. Well, it's a good you know, motivator. Yeah. 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 And it really, it was, it was, I've used the fear of getting a real job for like easily 40 years. Like it's just, <laughs> it's I a just, healthy fear. It's a healthy fear yeah. speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, and my partner and I just didn't want to get a real job. So that's why we really, when we, when, um, when wax decided, you know, it was time. I was like, my partner was like, look, man, we have this label. Let's focus on that. And I was like, you know what? All right, let's do it. And then that was really, that was really what I, and, and, and that's kind of what ended up leading to comedy because I stopped playing music right around when I was 33. And for like a good 10, 12 years, I just focused on the label. And at that point, the label, you know, with me and my partner working together, it blew up. You know, I was flogging Molly, Gaslight Anthem, Go Go Berdello, all the nice. tour stuff. Yeah. You know, just, it just blew up. And we were really, really fortunate to work with great bands. You know, just, you know, like I said, Gaslight Anthem, Title Fight, just so many killer bands and just pup uh, the, you know i i always feel like when i'm saying this right now like i don't ever want to miss anyone the briggs like the bostones like i just i love all of the bands that had that i had the opportunity to work with uh and it seems like a dream i'm so grateful for it so i never want to like miss anyone because they were all so cool i never worked we never worked with any dicks you <laughs> know like we're super lucky like i just you know i hear horror stories you know every once in a while you know, there might be a, you know, maybe a, someone disagreeing with something, but we never have these like nightmare stories of just people that were jerks. Uh, we were, they were just good people. I feel so blessed. You know, I'm still friends, you know, uh, my buddy, Jesse Mallon, uh, I still saw uh, Brian Fallon from Gaslight. I just saw Lawrence from the Boston's on this tour. I talked to Dickie from the Boston's mm. yesterday. Uh, you know, I still talked to my partner, Bill. And, you know, we sold the label three years ago and, you know, we're still super friendly and we talk, you know, we're best friends. I remember when we, when we, I remember the first January after we decided to, you know, basically hand over the reins to the people that were going to, you know, run side one dummy, which was an honor that like, I thought maybe if we sold it someday, it'd be like the name would be gone, but they were like, no, we want to continue signing bands in the, you know, in the vein of what you guys built. And it was like, wow. So like, to this day, like I follow Side One Dummy on my Instagram, and it's like they sign cool shit, and I'm like, dude, like it's still going on, even though Bill and I, you know, aren't there. But it's like the energy and kind of the thoughts and the beliefs that we had are definitely the people that work there got it, and they just keep moving it forward, which is such an honor because, like, I'll be six feet under, and who knows, that stuff might still be going on, which is just killer. Is signing bands now harder or just different than it was, like? pre-internet and TikTok and everything else. I feel like... I think it's different and harder. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, 
it's it, and there's a lot of it. I mean because it's like what do you need you know the the big the question I think a lot of those the the, the uh, bands can ask the bands can ask hey why do I need a label and you know there was a time when you needed a label for distribution and marketing and finance and you know helping you uh, grow your brand and now because of the world that we live in there's a lot of bands that do that all on their own and and which is amazing and which is great. I think it really comes down to what kind of band you are and who you want to be as a band and what you want to do. And at that moment, it, you make the decision like, Hey, do we, because do you need an extra set of hands? And as a label, that's what we used to always say is, you know, side one dummy. We were always like, Hey, we're here as an extra set of hands. And as the business changed, like when, when we first started it, you know, in 95, you needed more, you needed, it, it was about, you know, finance. It was about, getting some money to make a record. It was about getting hooked up with the, the right tours. It was about um, uh, getting distribution. It was about marketing. It was about press. It was about radio. Well, when the music business changed and all those things you know, went away and everything got leveled, it was more about like, hey, I'm a band and because of the internet, there's no more gatekeepers. So I'm going to put my song on YouTube. I'm going to put my own song on Spotify. I'm going to do this. And bands began to... Uh, be able to build it on their own, which is beautiful. Like, I love that. But I think bands also realized, oh my God, that's a lot of work. And that's why I think you still need labels because you're like, hey, even if I'm doing it on my own, I mean, think about your guys' podcast. All right, we're going to record it. Someone had to set it up with Joe. Oh my God, will this guy answer his email? All right, now we did the recording. Okay, now we got to cut it up. Now we got to put it on the, you know, the platform. Then we got to take the photo. Who's cutting the clip up? That's a lot of work. At a certain point, you may, you guys might be like, you know what? We're going to hand over all of that to this podcasting network so that you know we can work on the creative part of it. Because you guys are the artists. And the podcast network is kind of the record label. So Wait, we can the- do that? I'm kidding. I know. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, no, I think, so, too, I think for a label, too, as a... Again, going back to the, the DIY thing, there's so much you can do as an artist, as a musician now. But at some point, if you get to a certain level, you want the you, you want to have a bigger reach. And I think for that, that's when you need a label. And I think a lot yeah. of labels won't even touch somebody unless they have a thousand, two thousand fans. The shows are doing go. the work already. Right. Yeah. There you go. And and then to bring it all the way around, because, you know, I'm sure people are, you know, that are watching right now and the people that are listening. They're like, when are we going to get to the comedy? That's what we came here for. So it all comes back to, you know, when you ask like, hey, when did you get into comedy? I got into comedy because, or I got, I got into comedy. It was, it was because the music thing had run its course for me. I didn't want to be in a band anymore. Um, but I missed being on stage and I was, uh, yeah. I was, I was looking at like, well, how do I get back on stage? And all of my peers. And and when I say peers, you know, I'm, I'm using people like Joey Cape from Lagwagon, Chuck Reagan from hot water music. Um, who else, who else, you know, like, you know, even uh, Tony Sly before he passed away, like from No Use for a Name, and the and the kind of and when I say those guys are my peers because they're great musicians, I'm just saying like that was the crew, that was where the people that like I was friendly with that were singers in bands, and they all picked up the acoustic guitar and they started making these like Chuck Reagan, he had like a whole I did all his solo records, and he made these amazing records, and. You know, Jesse Mallon, he left Degeneration and started a solo career. And I think it was a hard pill to swallow for me as a singer to 
I had to get real with myself and I'm like, I can't do what Chuck Reagan does. I can't like, mm. I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to be able to pick up a guitar and write those kind of songs and move that many people. I can't do what Jesse Mallon does. I can't do what Joey from Lagwagon. I, and I was like, kind of, I was at this crossroads where I'm like, all right, so now what do I do? Like, I want to, I, I still feel I have something to give. I still feel that I can create. I still feel that I want to get on stage. I missed the, I missed the, like, got the cup of coffee, slick the hair back, put the shirt on, <laughs> boom. But like, but like, what am I going to do? Like, where, do, how do I have something to give? And that was right around the time that I'd always been toying with like this one man show idea that would be stories and comedy, I thought, and just kind of all mixed together. And I, there was a mother that was an acting coach that whenever I dropped my kids off at school, her and I would have these just conversations about comedy and acting. And she was just really like, she was this old New York, not old, <laughs> sorry, Sid. Um, she, uh, she was just this woman from New York and she just had like a no BS attitude and her and I just really got along. And my wife was like, you know, you should really work with Sid on that one man show idea you have. And I was like, you think so? And she's like, yeah. And I wrote this one man show called California Calling. And it was all about kind of growing up in Santa Cruz. It was about growing up in Santa Cruz and how punk rock and skateboarding. And this one particular day put me on the path that would put me to the moment like I'm having with you guys right now. <clears throat> because it was, it was, it all came to when I, my dad took me to the skateboard park, 1982, you know, December 27th. And I became a member of Winchester skateboard park. And that was the first place that like, I heard black flag and the Ramones mm -hmm. and the, and it was just like, it was, it was like, it was the equivalent of that was the first moment that I went from being my parents music life. This is what you do to like, this is what I'm going to do. And here we go. Um, and everything we've talked about for the last hour. Uh, but I did the one man show for a while and it, and it was received really, really well. And people were into it. And um, at the time, the woman that was a booker at the, the woman who books the comedy store now, Emily, uh, she was the booker at the uh, improv and she came to see me do the one man show and she's amazing. And she was like, Oh my, she was a, little punker she's like i love big d in the kids table and i could you do your show at the improv and i was like okay how would i do that she's like i'm the booker <laughs> and she brought me in and i did the show and it was it was great it was sold out and then um kind of one thing led to another and uh and then the word had gotten out and then i'm, I'm friends with Polly, um and uh you know Polly shore him and i at a certain point i was uh wax was the band in biodome and um and Polly Shore, oh. you know, he was, he, Mitzi was still alive and everything. And, and he had heard I was doing this one man show with music and he reached out to me and he's like, Hey, you got to come to your show at the store. Like, you know, my mom built the main room for that. And I was like, okay. And he was, he's always been super, super cool. And just, just, you know, like, I'm not like, we don't roll together, but definitely a person, you know, send a text to each other every once in a while. He's just been super cool. He's, you know, I, I just, you know, just a good guy. And that kind of got me in the comedy rooms, but I didn't really know kind of what I was doing. And then uh, after I did the com uh, the one man show for like two years, three years, um, Emily at the improv was like, you should come down and like, why don't you just do like some stand up and, and, you know, I'll give you 10 minutes. And I was like, it was just like, what? And like, it, then all of a sudden I was like, wow, like, okay, maybe I can do that. And then I, that was like, that was like a turning point for me because 
I made the decision. I want to do stand-up. And the only goal I had at that point was just to be good enough so that if I went up on a bill at a show, I didn't suck. I wasn't the worst. There had like I had to at least be like it wouldn't be so noticeable that like, oh my God, so and so went up, then this guy went up. Oh my God, he, he cleared the room. And I just really wanted to do that. And then that turned into full on straight up 16 year addiction of every single week. At, at first it was trying to get up once a week and then it was like twice a week. And then it was, you know, three times, four times. And then, five, and then it's turned into currently full blown 16 year addiction chasing laughs. And I'm currently in um, somewhere in South Carolina tonight, chasing some laughs. So in, in your, on your website and your bio, you talk about like your show with Jim Brewer and opening for Metallica. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like how that came about? The way that we got on the Metallica tour, that was all, you know, Jim Brewer. He's, he's friends with those guys. Like I'm friends with DNA. You know what I'm saying? They're just okay. his friends. And which is weird because it's super weird to be in a car and, you know, see a text come in from James Hetfield, which is just weird. You're like, <laughs> you think it's like, Oh dude, like, Oh, did you put that in your phone? And it's like his bro, you know, or from like Lars from Metallica, you know, I'd hear him talking to him and uh, they wanted an opening. They didn't want to bring an opening act in 2018. And they, they asked Jim, Hey man, what do you think about you coming out and uh, put together a show? And you know, the thing that was so cool was, uh, you know, Jim said, Hey man, they, they said I could bring someone else, you know, and I could bring someone with me to help do it. Are you down? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, and we didn't really, you know, at the time we didn't really know, I think what we were getting ourselves into, but it, you know, it ended up being something that, you know, like, like you guys, I, I get asked about it all the time. You know, it was 30 shows over six months. Uh, it started out a little rough it ended amazing. Uh, to this day, I, if you know, there's always people at shows that were out there that saw us, um, the connection that we ended up having with the Metallica fans and the connection we ended up having with like, there's different chapters in each city, like the Denver chapter, the Los Angeles chapter, Metallica. like we ended up just connecting with these people on a huge level. And it was one of the, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And sometimes I look back on it though. And it's like, Holy shit. What was I thinking? Like it, it could have went so bad. And it was, it's like, it was like diffusing a, like opening for them every night was like someone giving you a bomb to take apart in front of everybody because <laughs> one, one, you know, one wrong song, one wrong joke one wrong comment one wrong just anything it could go south so quick and it was it was killer and it was something that that at the at the time it's kind of like i felt like i was tightrope walking and i'm i'm really stoked i never looked down because i think i probably would have thrown up because it was just <laughs> so it was so crazy and weird and fun and surreal you know growing up in the bay area i was a huge metallic fan and i i was a metallica fan more so for their attitude than their music like jim's a metallica fan like word for word go song by song go through every album i'm not that guy like i know like you know first three albums like dude i'm with you on kill them all 
Ride the Lightning, Masters, uh, and Justice for All, like our four albums, like boom, uh, Garage Days. Okay, I'm in. He can go deep. He goes, you know. Um, but I loved their attitude and what they were doing. Because once again, it ties into what I think we're talking about on this call is they were doing it on their own terms, doing it their own way. I really attached to that. But I thought if you would have told me when I was 17, you know, or when I was seeing them play at the Cow Palace, if you would have said to me like, yeah, dude, you're going to go on tour with these guys. I'd be like, hell yeah, I'll be going on tour with them in my band. No, dude. You're going to be going on tour with them as a comedian. Oh, and by the way, you'll be DJing. I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, it wouldn't have been what I wanted to do, but it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It I'll was so, it was so fun. It was so exciting. And, uh, and it was also one of those things like, where do you go to from there? Like, I always think about that. Like, you know, like you can't go any higher than that. You know, it's, it was, you know, the only way you go higher is if you're not the dude opening or the dude headlining, but like, you know, it was, it was great. It was super, super exciting and fun. Wow. Who awesome. were your comedy? How were you, who were your comedy influences? Oh man, for me, um, Greg Gerardo, love Greg Gerardo. He was one of the first, I mean, I mean, I grew up like, you know, you know, I grew up with the comics that people my age grew up with George Carlin, Richard Pryor, mm -hmm. Bill yeah. Cosby, Steve Martin, uh, Flip Wilson, uh, that, you know, the Smothers Brothers, like that was all the shit that like, you know, Saturday Night Live, that, you know, first, you know, the, that, that era. Um, and then, you know, you slide into Eddie Murphy, of course, Andrew Dice Clay, like, but like, I, you know, I, I loved comedy. I remember we, I had a George, my parents had George Carlin records. So like, I remember like, wow, like this is like, I was definitely into it. Um, I think though, as I got older, the comic, like I, I would really say Greg Gerardo was like one of the first guys that like, I don't know. I just identified with him on so many levels. I just, I don't know what it was. I just, I just loved, you know, I just, I was like, Oh my God, I love this guy. And that was kind of like when I was toying with the idea of doing it, mm -hmm. you know? And then, um, and then once I, you know, once you got into the game, I, I did, I ended up doing the same thing I did when I started going to see, you know, punk rock bands. I just, I, I was very fortunate that Jamie Masada at the Laugh Factory, he was the first dude to pass me. And um, I started hosting there. And no one wanted to host. And I don't understand. Uh, I didn't understand why. Yeah. Everyone was like against hosting. Every comic was like, I don't host. You know, and you're like, all right. And I was like, I'll host. <clears throat> and I loved it. And there was just a stink on it, but I didn't care. And I just, like I did when I was, you know, 14 and 15 with bands. I started doing that with comedy. I would just, I would host these shows and I would get there. There'd be two shows a night, two different lineups. And I just started studying it. I remember like Bobby Lee, you know, Bill Burr, Eric Griffin, Chris D'Elia, you know, uh, Sarah Silverman, uh, you know, Whitney Cummings. I mean, like I was just there, Pat Oswalt. I would just, you know, between the improv and the laugh factor, I would just be sitting there and I'd be like bringing these people up and I would just, I was like, oh my God, I'm bringing these amazing comics on stage. And like, instead of like bring them up and then go wander, I would just sit in the booth and I would just, I mean, I would just take notes. I remember I told the story the other day. I was like, I'm, the first time I saw Bobby Lee, I literally like wrote down in my notepad, like get more physical, you know, be drop more into the joke. Like I was just so blown away to see someone 
get up there the way he did. And it, it just felt like he was just so in the moment, but I didn't even know what being in the moment meant. I didn't know what was scripted. I didn't know what riffing meant. I didn't know any of it. And I just, I don't know. I was older and I could just, I don't know. I could just really, I just wanted to get good. And I was just yeah. like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here. And, and then, you know, I nerded out, like I nerded out on John Mulaney, like really <laughs> bad. Like I, I, I had like a, I was so into John Mulaney. He's I just funny. like, yeah, oh my God. Like talk you, about you the know, consummate writer. His material. Yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. And the new in town. Yeah. Yeah. New in town was like, I just listened to it over and over and I would, I would, you know, write out what he was saying and just how to see it physically in front of me to witness the structure of the words mm -hmm. and every word having a reason to be there. Mm -hmm. And I really nerded out on that. I really like, you know, like sometimes people make fun of like guys that play Dungeons and Dragons or people that are into Star Wars and like all of that nerd, like making fun of people that are nerds in like Star Wars. And I, I, all of that like stopped once I got into comedy. Cause I was like, dude, you're a nerd. You're like studying a sentence from someone, you know? And I, I just, I just immersed myself in it. I was just like, uh, and you know, like I remember one year, like I spent one year or no, I think I spent a little over a year and a half on trying to see how quick I could get a laugh on stage and like watching people's late night sets and watching their five minutes and then going out and only wanting to do five minute sets and then only wanting to do three minute sets. And I got to the point where I, like I would show up and people like this one time, this guy goes, I got no time. I mean, Joe, I got like two minutes. And I was like, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And he was like, what? And I was just, I was like, I'm going to do a two minute set. I'm going to get on and off in two minutes. I'm going to crush in two minutes. What a cool and, challenge. Wow. And it, but it was just like, it was this a weird obsession. And then like, I watched all these late night sets and I remember I was watching everyone and how they came on stage and this and that. I remember I watched Beth Stelling and she got like a laugh in like 19 seconds on like, I forgot who she was on, maybe Kimmel or someone. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, like how did she do that? You know? And I was just like, I was like, okay, I need to figure that out. And then I just, I just kept doing that. And then that just led to just more and more sets and more and more, um, you know, like I, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, it, it turns into this, it's this, um, you know, it's like you got this, it, it turns into just getting that validation from the laugh. And I think you're chasing that validation. Like you want to make people laugh and, you know, like some people, you know, they could say, Oh, well, you know, I don't, you know, but you're lying to you. If you're a comedian, you're, you know, you're not traveling around the world. I mean, if you're making killer money, you know, you know, which it's out there, then okay, maybe you're not chasing laugh. But at the level I'm at, and that level that so many of comedians are, it's like you're chasing that laugh. Like you, you want it. There's nothing better than hearing a whole room full of people laugh at something that you wrote, you know, in the car or in a, you know, in your bedroom or in a, you know, in a in a hotel room, and it started out as five words, and now it's ten, and now it's twenty, and now it's a, and you're just like, oh my god, and, and you know you you want to keep saying it and perfecting it and then it's out well, there yeah and the good the good comics keep doing it. i mean seinfeld doesn't have to work but he loves doing stand-up he, he loves he loves writing he's, he studies it i mean he's very serious about it i mean that's those kind of guys just keep doing it for the same reasons well it's, you know and seinfeld's the same guy said he said 
I don't care if you're playing to 200 people. I don't care if you're playing to 20 people. I don't care if you're playing to 1,000 people. It's like, are you a comic? Yes or no. If you are, sit down. Let's talk. If you're not, I don't have time for you. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't, he doesn't like, it's not about, you know, okay. It's at the end of the day, jokes, writing, performing. Yeah. You know, like I remember when I went on the road once with Ismo and, um, and I loved him and I, and I met him really early on in his career and we did some shows together and, you know, I called him up and I was like, Hey man, I see that you're going through, um, you know, so-and-so. And I, I go, Hey, do you, you know, we should do the shows. You know, do you need someone that he goes, I would love to have you open. I go, okay, great. He's all Joe. The only thing when we, when we're doing the shows, we only talk about comedy and I go, excuse me. And you know, his English is kind of broken up already. He goes, we only talk comedy. And I was like, okay. And literally from the moment you walked in the dressing room, all he wanted to do is you give him a bit and then you go, I'm working on this. You should go, okay. You go, and then he help you. And then he throws something at you and then you go, okay. And that's all he wants to do. He doesn't want to talk about how your marriage is. He doesn't want to talk about your kids. He doesn't want to talk about anything. And I was like, I like this, you know, like uh -oh. this is, this is where, this is where the magic happens. When you meet people that are that, obsessed i'm like okay and I you're gonna like learn it. from them too yeah you know? so the, yeah. that that is a workshop then in between yes, sets for pretty everybody. much yeah dude mark nice. norman i opened up for i i featured for mark norman i don't know a couple of years ago and uh and he he was doing uh irvine improv dude he was i was blown away because one night the show starts the host goes up i go up to feature we, mark's not there yet um, the host finally kind of grabs me and goes, dude, you know, Mark's here, you know, wrap it up. Cool. I get off. Mark goes up after the show. I was like, dude, where were you? Did you, you know, did you, you know, get oversleeved? He's like, oh, I was doing a mic over in Santa Ana and I just didn't get, I'm like, you were doing a mic before your two sold out shows? He's like, yeah. I was like, holy shit. Just working and working and working. Uh dude. You know, nice. Tom Dresden, I remember I worked with him, you know, used to open for Sinatra, old guys. I mean, I hate saying that, but he was, you know, he's literally going on stage to the moment he went on stage, writing, 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 moving things around. Okay, go. You know, like just the guys that, you know, I feel like there's, there's the people that are working and then there's the people that aren't. And you can tell the difference in the, the quality of their work and everything. It's about the craft. It really is. Yeah. So Either you love it and you nerd yeah. out on it and you make it a part of your life. And, you know, and the only thing you have to worry about is that, you know, in all honesty, if you make it, if you truly make it a part of your life and this is what you, you, and you're going to do it, just be prepared for other areas of your life to suffer. Absolutely. There's, you know, there's, there's no way that it, that's not, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's analogous to songwriting and like anything you dive into. And I think, and I, I don't mean that in a negative way, like, cause I don't no. want someone to listen to it. Is yeah. he, What's he saying? But I'm just saying this, dude. If let's picture we get a pizza together, right? Oh. And my side's the comedy slip, right? You know what I put on that? I put anchovies. I just ruined the whole pizza. The whole pizza now, no one else wants it. That's being a comedian. It's like, it's, it's boom. You, if you really want to do it, I'm not talking about you're getting up, you know, once every month or you're, you know, putting a show on, you know, once every three months. I'm talking you're living, breathing, sleeping notepad you walk into your house there's little pieces of paper everywhere because there's all little jokes on there like if you're going down that route because you're serious about really giving it a shot and really being the, it's not even about giving it a shot just being the best comedian possible because the other thing about comedy is this 
you can't, it's, there's, it's the only thing that you have to do all the time. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's not something you can go, Oh yeah, I'm going to do comedy like um, once a week. Sorry. It's not, you're not going to be good. You yeah. have to be getting up minimum, you know, four, uh, three to four times a week, you know? And yeah. that's like, that's, that's not even a lot compared to the dudes in New York. That's not a lot to the dudes in Austin, but like, if you know, you gotta be getting up because you, you have to be getting up so much and not doing, getting up to stoke your ego, but to do the reps, you know, to, to, to hear yourself, to hear the audience. And you also got to get up in front of the right audiences. You know, you get up in front of a mic, it's all comics. You're going to get sad. You're not going to want to do it anymore. You got to find the right shows. And it's a hustle, man. It's a hustle, but it's either you love it or you don't. And that's the thing you see. You see people come and go all the time. You know, there you go. I remember, I remember when I was in my, one of my first bands and you know, we were on tour and I had to miss something at home. And, and the guy that produced our record said, Hey man, be prepared to miss weddings. Be prepared to miss Christmas, Thanksgivings, Easter's, funerals. Cause if you're in this game, you know, that's just part of it. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's not like, will that happen? It's just reality. Do we just end sad? No, no. <laughs> Yeah, well, Let's end well, by plugging your gig, which is February 9th at Coamba in Santa Cruz. There you go. Come, hey, February 9th. A, a committed, a committed stand-up who's serious yeah. about his craft. Come and has on always, always done things his own way. There you go. Um, I, I can't wait to come back to Santa Cruz and I can't wait to uh especially get up there as soon as it is that you know, I love Santa Cruz. That time of year is always cool. Um, I can't wait to do the Kumba because it's like I said, super special room. Got a lot of great memories there. And, um, and thanks you guys for, you know, taking the time. I know that like we were going back and forth with trying to find the time to make it work, but I really appreciate you guys. Oh, dude, uh, this, this yeah. is nothing compared to half the interviews we have to coordinate. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This has been, this was this easy, is an easy actually. one. Awesome. So, there you go. so again, February 9th, Kumbo Jazz Center. Yes. I'll be um, there. Yeah. See you definitely. Thank you guys so much. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And thanks again for having me. It really meant a lot. I took the tour and the, and, the, and the woman who gave me the tour, she's like, you know, Joe, just so you know, some of them are residents and they can't bathe themselves. And I was like, damn. And then this man, Derek, big dude, just, I don't know, he had a beret on for some reason. And he was giving this little teeny man a bath. And I watched through a window and I heard, I heard music, you know? And I was like, I've got to do that someday. Right? Doesn't that sound great? Just someone picking you up and just laying you down and bathing you. Oh. You guys, I would do that tonight. Who here is married with your partner? Put your hand up if you're with your partner. Now keep your hands up if your partner bathes you. There you go. See what I'm saying? That was cool. I think everything Joe does, and I probably said this a couple of times, is all under the umbrella of DIY from the, the music career, the label. And now doing stand-up and the fact that he studied it so hard and so so much when he was hosting, um, pretty impressive. And it shows he takes everything he does pretty seriously, but also very entertaining. Very entertaining. I loved what he said about never wanting to have a real job and that being a huge motivator for the last 40 years to just keep, doing, keep him doing fun stuff. I like that. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, we'll see him at actually Joe and I will see him on, on the ninth at, at Kumba Kumba. I never pronounced that right. Santa Cruz. Uh, it's a great room. It's going to be a great comedy show. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Area Eight Three One podcast. We will talk at you very soon. And as always, you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast: Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts. Um, 
or area831podcast.com. And if you have an idea for an interview, give us an email or shoot us an email and let us know. We'd love to talk to anybody you think is uh, interesting to drop in and speak with us. And uh, you can you can tune in and listen to them. Thanks again. Thanks again.